The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Here we go. This feels like a new beginning. Episode 101. The first episode in a new 100. Holy smokes. There we go. We're off. And we have a good episode today. Maya Angelou talking to Oprah. And a visit from our old friend, Mike Palindrome, the president himself, who's going to join me to talk about writers at work. So I'm back from vacation. Thank you for all the emails and tweets and other comments that have piled up while I was gone. Some great suggestions have come in and some heartfelt sentiments, and I appreciate them all. And I also appreciate those of you who have said you'd like to support the show. Well, I have some good news on that front. I've set up a Patreon account. You can head on over to patreon.com literature and sign up or a donation of as little as $1 a month. And I'm going to put a ceiling on there, too. We'll have a maximum $1 million a month. Beyond that, I will not take your money. Sorry, Mr. Buffett. You're going to have to find some other podcaster to reward. Share the wealth, sir. But seriously, I'm very appreciative for whatever you can give. The way it works is that you sign up for a monthly donation, and I will use that money to defray my costs. I thought about doing it per episode, but I thought monthly might make more sense, since the minimum is lower that way, for those of you who prefer that option. Twelve bucks a year. Of course, you can cancel if you're unhappy, or you can give more if you're happy. This is it. Well, we'll see how this goes. Fingers are crossed that at least one of you will sign up. That's patreon.com slash literature. Let me know how it goes if you choose to do this, and if there's anything you think should run more smoothly or be improved. And if you don't like the idea of recurring payments, stay tuned. We're working on a one-time donation option. That's a little trickier but we're working on it. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus 
in Apple Podcasts. Okay, writers at work. What kind of jobs have authors had? What's this? Who's this? Frank! Let it, let it get me down. Frank, what are you doing here? Cause this fine old world, it keeps spinning That's right, around. keeps spinning around. I've been a puppet, ah. a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn and a king. Oh, boy. I've been up and down and over a and A puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn and a king. How about a potato chip inspector? Or one of Robert Frost's jobs, replacing burned-out filaments in light bulbs. Didn't make it into the song. What jobs help writers work? Which ones don't? Which ones get in the way? And which ones inspire them to greatness? By showing them what they can do? By giving them some great topic to write about? Or by making them hate the experience of working so much that they dedicate themselves to their art with renewed energy, if not panic? I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet... A pawn and a king I've been up and ah, So good. We'll have all that coming up in a second. All that talk about writers. But first, here's a great description of a job by a great American poet, Maya Angelou, who told the story of her experience as the first black streetcar conductor hired by the city of San Francisco. Here she is, telling the story to Oprah. Many times I thought of cutting out, but my heart won't buy it. But if there's nothing shaking come this here July, I'm gonna roll my... You have such a long list of achievements as we were compiling them. You were the first black streetcar conductor <laughs> in the city of San Francisco. I was 16. You were 16? Yes, I was black, 16. And, and had the nerve to walk. I saw women on the streetcars with their little changer belts, with, you know, mm-hmm. that, and they had caps with bills on them, and they had form-fitting uh, uh, jackets. You liked the uniform. I loved the uniform. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, that's the job I want. And, and, uh, They'd never hired a black person? They had never, no. So did you see that as the accomplishment that it was at the time? No, my mother did. Uh-huh. Because mother, I said, I, I went down to place an application and they wouldn't even give it to me. And so I went back to my mother and I said, they, they wouldn't even allow me to apply. She asked me, why? Do you know why? I said, yes, because I'm a Negro. She said, yes, but do you want the job? I said, yes. She said, go get it. Here, I give you money every day you go down, be there before the secretaries get there. You sit there in the office. You read one of your big, thick Russian books. I was reading Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or something at the time. She said, and then when they go to lunch, then you go. Go to a good restaurant. You know how to order good food. Go back before the secretaries get there. I did all of it. And then sit there until they leave. They laughed at me. They pushed out their lips and use some negative uh, racial things. And, but I sat there. After, at 16? After, yes, but look at here. Here was the thing. I sat there because I was afraid to go home. <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid to tell my mother that I wasn't as strong as she thought I was. Wow. So I sat there for two weeks every day 
And then after two weeks, a man came out of his office. He said, come in. And he asked me, why do you want the job? I said, I like the uniforms. <laughs> and I said, and I like people. And, and so I got the job. Amazing. What's amazing is the story that you tell in Mom and Me of your mother, knowing that you were 16-year-old on the streetcars and that she followed you yes. in her... That's you right. tell the story. About 4 o'clock in the morning, she'd wake me up with my bath uh, already drawn. I'd take a bath, put on my uniform, and she would drive me out to the beach. And she had her pistol on the seat of the car. And she would follow the streetcar all the way from the beach down to the ferry building, right through San Francisco, and back again out to the beach until daybreak. I mean, stay close so that nobody got on that she didn't see. And then wow. at 6.30 or 7. That's she, a mother. She's a mother. That's a mother. She was really all of that. And she asked me once, she said, now, what did you learn from that job? Because when, when it was time for me to go back to school, I went back to school. I said, I learned that I, I don't, I like to work. She said, what else did you learn? I said, I don't know. She said, about yourself. You learn that you're very strong. The determination. Wow. Dedication. And you can go anywhere in the world. It keeps spinning around. I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn and a king. I've been up and down and over and out. And I know one thing. Each time I find myself flat on my face. I pick myself up and get back in the race. That's life. That's life. I tell you. Okay, so we've got Mike back here. Thanks, Mike, for joining us again on the History of Literature podcast. Hey, Jack. So you are headed on vacation soon. I'm wondering, have you got some good books picked out? Yeah, I do. Um, I'm gonna. I'm going to Germany, um, Holland and France. So I'm going to bring Herman Hesse's um, Damien. Ooh, okay. Which Is that one you which, haven't read before? No, I've only read The Glass Bead Game by mm-hmm. him because I'm kind of not interested at all in his Eastern <laughs> thought novels. No Siddhartha. Yeah, because I, I kind of am not really uh, a believer in Eastern thought, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but anyway, I I read an article about how everyone in South Korea has read Damien. Oh, interesting! And it's this book about conformity. Emil is the main character, and he just butts heads against his parents and schools and jobs. And eventually, encounters the devil, uh, who gives him some advice and. I don't want to give away the ending, but basically it's a novel that's it's sort of a Bible against conformity. Mm. That's so interesting. You, yeah, so you can understand why, I can understand why it resonated so so much with South Koreans. Yeah. So. Okay, anything else? Uh, and I'm also going to bring Rilke. I'm going to reread, yeah. re- reread some Rilke. Um, yeah. And then I'm bringing Ursula Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness. Ah. Okay, which that's I, one I haven't read. Yeah, which I picked up years ago, but it's it's a sci-fi novel where you can, about a planet where you can choose your gender. Mm. 
Okay, well, that sounds like a good, uh, a good suitcase, good additions to your suitcase there. Yeah, and uh, hopefully pick up some books along the way too, of course. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I always wonder what to do with them when they start to get heavy. I used to mail them home. You know, I couldn't bear to just throw them out or something. I don't know now. Maybe I would give them away or uh, maybe I don't travel long enough for that to really become too much of an issue. Yeah, I'm only gone for two weeks, so I'll lug. I'll lug them all. Yeah, and a lot of people solve that with a Kindle, but I still like uh, pulling out the the actual hard copy. Yeah, nobody nobody will approach you if you're holding a Kindle. <laughs> right. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about writers at work, the different jobs that writers have had. I was uh, this is a real rabbit hole to go down once you start looking into this. It's it's. Uh, there are as many jobs as there are writers, I think. Yeah, it was it was pretty fun. You know, obviously they're they're kind of legends of yeah. certain jobs that people held, like Wallace Stevens yep. was an insurance clerk, and yep. Um, but then I, I I was delighted to discover all these other jobs, like um, Kurt Vonnegut sold mm. sobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the first sob dealers in North America. <laughs> That's a great one. And how did you feel? I I found it, uh, I started thinking about writers and their jobs and just what it means for a writer to have a job. And I I really found that I wanted writers to have had actual jobs. But I know that on the other hand, it's hard to write when you have a job that takes up a lot of time. And so I was kind of torn because on the one hand, I felt like every time I found a writer who was independently wealthy or who inherited money or who had a spouse that worked or something. I kind of looked down on them a little bit for that, but I also recognized that's what every writer would do if they could is, is have, you know, all all the time they, they could devote to their writing. But I, I found that there's this balance between, I think it's very hard to write um, if you have no job and no reason to have a job, I think the only person mm-hmm. that I came across was maybe Proust. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, <laughs> the way I looked at this was kind of distinct periods of people's lives and mm-hmm. the writer's ability to make a break. Yep. Um, like Chang Ray Lee had gone to Yale undergrad, graduated, you know, top of his class, and gotten a job as an investment banker. Mm-hmm. And he did it for a year and then decided that this is just not the way he wanted to live his life. And he quit and he started writing fiction. And he wrote enough to get into Reed, I think Reed College's MFA program. Mm-hmm. And there he wrote about 12 to 15 hours a day working on what he considered to be a better novel than Gravity's Rainbow. Ooh. Yeah. So set his sights high. Yeah. And so I, I feel like the, he was able to do that because he had been an investment banker for a year and probably right. hated it. Right. And he was, it was all pent up. And he also had a kind of uh, workmanlike work ethic where he, yeah. he knew what it meant to sit yourself down in the chair and, and stick to it, put in a hard day's work. Yeah, so, I, you know, it was funny because some people were like, well, I think the best job is an office job because you can actually write while you're in an office. Mm. But mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure it is if 
your hours are long and also if you, you know you're surrounded by people who are a certain type yeah you know, yeah you're you're almost better off being a librarian i feel like a librarian isn't a bad job to be a writer yeah there's some real i i turn this into categories as usual whenever I try to tackle this. I'm sort of learning that about myself as I prepare for these drafts is I need to find categories in order to make sense of things. And I put that in my category called old standbys, which was teaching, journalism, publishing, bookstores and libraries, jobs like that, where it's kind of a natural fit for someone who likes books. And those jobs kind of have a bit of room to be around books or to be reading or to maybe be writing. Um, you know, it fits into your schedule a bit better. And definitely uh, there were a few librarians on my list. And I, I just took teaching out of it altogether. I just, uh, I didn't choose anyone who was a teacher. I just, I almost don't consider that a job, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is terrible. I know it is a job. And I guess, I guess I, I, wouldn't say that about teaching kindergarten or, you know, yeah. or teaching in a prison or, or tutoring or something, but teaching in an MFA program to me, um, it just, it, it's too common and it just didn't, uh, just wasn't something that I was really gravitating toward when I was trying to find good examples of writers who have held jobs. Yeah. I mean, Tom Tobin says that when he teaches a, a semester of creative writing, um, as a guest teacher, guest lecturer, he can't write at all. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know other uh, professors yeah. who have said that as well. That it just yep. uh, that they just don't write. But on the other hand, it just doesn't seem. One of the things that I liked about jobs is when it really gave people something interesting to write about. And yeah. I think the experience at the MFA program, although there have been some good books that were set there, and I, I don't mean to disparage the entire experience as not giving people enough to write about. But in general, it seems like it doesn't give that kind of um, detail or the fresh and the unusual as a subject for people to write about. So why don't we start with our draft? I'll let you pick first and we'll, we'll walk through some of these, but uh, I think there are so many, even though we probably ended up, we may have ended up choosing some of the same people, but I think we should also, just throw out, throw out a lot of uh, jobs that we've run across of different writers as we go and not really limit ourselves to the usual 10 here. Yeah. I was kind of torn between uh, Anthony Trollope and William Faulkner. Because mm. mm-hmm. Trollope um, worked at the post office. <laughs> which Okay, no. take Trollope and then I'll follow up with Faulkner because okay. that, that was my and, number one. So. Oh, okay. Because tell us about um, Trollope. <laughs> I guess what I did was I kind of projected onto some of these, uh, to many of these writers, what I would prefer. And I think that be, working in a post office, you get enough interaction with people. Mm-hmm. But I think your mind—maybe I romanticize it—but you you have a kind of a clear head working at the post office because the tasks are so simple mm-hmm. yeah um and, and i should i mean i have two different post offices in mind really there's the kind <laughs> of the small town where i grew up where basically you know they work in there by themselves you're almost like your own boss 
and you maybe have one person who walks in every 15 or 20 minutes, you're pretty much alone. That's different from the post offices that I saw in Chicago or New York, where you maybe are just dealing with long lines of angry customers and it's almost like working at cash register or something where it's it's never ending. That seems like it would be more grueling and, and take more out of you. Yeah, I mean, I definitely felt that certain jobs were, it, it, it's kind of a miracle that people wrote. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, right. So what did Trollope, what was his post office experience? I think the, I mean, I, the hours weren't very long because he was able to write in the morning. And that was the other thing that I found myself drawn to is jobs where you could write in the morning mm. rather rather than mm -hmm. at night. Because so, you know, the problem with day jobs is that, you know, and, and generally people say, writers say that it, it's easier to write your best, it's easier to write in the morning because mm -hmm. you have a clear head. Um, and a number of people did Many people write at night, but, you know, Trollope's job allowed him to write three hours every morning before he went to work. Right. So. I think uh, I think Scott Turow has a setup like that at his law firm where he writes in the morning and then he sees clients and works on cases in the afternoon, hmm. which, yeah. uh, you know, he, he it must be because... There, he's bringing in business just because of his the fame of his books, right? You know, so it's uh, he can probably just name his schedule basically. But it's interesting. He clearly he wouldn't have to work at all. I mean, he could just write. But I think uh, something about having you know new clients walking in the door is probably very good for his imagination. Yeah, I mean, I've known I, I've known people. I, I've had friends who have stopped writing because they said it was, they were too lonely. Mm. And, yeah. you know, preparing for this, thinking about certain jobs, but also just thinking about what it takes to write and how all those thousands of hours you spend by yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. it just seems like if you could have a job where it was a little levity or perhaps right. one colleague you liked, um, it could recharge your batteries, which I always find an annoying phrase, but as I get older, I, I think it's <laughs> sort of true. Your batteries are more in need of recharging. I think they, uh, you hear that with people who they get the chance to work from home and then they turn it down or they yeah. don't want to work from home every day. They want to go to the office. They want to have that bit of society and that, that interpersonal interaction. And for a writer, Especially if they're given to doubt or, you know, or yeah. or laboring over a text and, and feeling overwhelmed by the experience. You could see where I, th I think a lot of writers long to be in a more collaborative art form, too, like, a you know, to work on a movie or to work on a, a play or something where you have the input of other creative people and you're part of a community putting something together. Yeah, I mean, and if you're not um, one of those writers that wants society, I I found I admired those writers who had figured that out early, like mm -hmm. like Cheever. Cheever used to put on a suit and take his elevator, take the elevator downstairs to the basement where he had an arrangement with the super, 
<laughs> where he could write in the basement. They had a desk and a chair for him. Right. And then he'd go back home, take off his suit, and, you know, have cocktails. And, yeah. You know, so he, clearly he, he wanted nothing to do with people An while he was writing. Office. Right, right. Yeah. Um, okay, so let me talk about Faulkner. And because one, one of the reasons why I chose him, he also had a job supervising a power plant, which has got to be one of the um, most dangerous <laughs> ideas. It's like... Probably short of Homer Simpson, that's probably the, the most <laughs> dangerous person you could put in charge of a power plant. He uh, he was famous for his letter of resignation, which I loved, and that's why I've had him as number one. He was the the post office or the postmaster general, I guess, of of uh, of the University of Mississippi, and <laughs> his performance left a lot to be desired. There was uh, a lot of accounts of him losing mail and occasionally throwing a mail away, which is, <laughs> which is like a pretty uh, a pretty bad thing for your your postal <laughs> worker to do. He ignored colleagues and customers when they came in. He played bridge even <laughs> even when uh, the post office was open. And he showed up late, he left early, and he held it for about three years until finally they they came and they gave an inspection and they basically said, this is like the worst post office we've ever inspected. And <laughs> so he was forced to resign and he wrote this sort of famous resignation letter. And I'll read it. It's about three sentences here. It's, as long as I live under the capitalistic system... I expect to have my life influenced by the demands of moneyed people, but I will be damned if I propose to be at the beck and call of every itinerant scoundrel who has two cents to invest in a postage stamp. This, sir, is my resignation, William Faulkner. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. And he, of course, also had the a, a, a pretty good career as a Hollywood screenwriter, but... Uh, a lot of his life was just a uh, how do I get enough money to keep writing these novels that need to come pouring out of me. <laughs> so, okay. So who's your next pick? Uh, the next one I went with Agatha Christie. Oh, yeah, yeah. She was on my list too. She was, uh, I don't mean to, to yeah. jump in here, but she was in my category of people who had the perfect job that set them up for their writing career. You know, that gave them a good topic to write about. Yeah, you wonder if she had the macabre in her already and was would have written those kind of stories, but certainly being a pharmacist assistant yep. exposed her, introduced her to all this all these great pharmaceutical details. Mm -hmm. It was one of these examples where you just need a little bit of expertise, I think, in fiction. Yep. And she, and, so she yeah. knew all about poisons and yeah. probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 of her books probably draw upon those. Yeah. I mean, and it, it, it you know, to create that kind of texture in her fiction, um, because her fiction is so fast paced that, but I, I remember when I read her as, you know, as a teenager and felt that when she introduced a little twist Mm -hmm. It was it, it. It just popped off the page. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Other professions that are really that that's a really good profession that sets her up for that. Other professions like that are uh, uh, spies. I found. Oh you know, yeah, the best spy 
writers have often were in intelligence or they just it's easy for them to know how things work and what's plausible and what's not plausible and they probably you know spent however many years just hearing all these different stories and meeting all these different people and John Le Carre and Ian Fleming and Graham Greene and they all did their their stint uh, as an intelligence agent and you know who else did Roald Dahl Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, Julia Child. Oh, yeah, I read about that. That's uh, She and her husband were both in it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I wonder if in that category of specialist, whether Lewis Carroll being a mathematician Mm. had anything to do with Alice in Wonderland and uh, (laughs) the trippiness of it. I'm sure it did. And, uh, (laughs) And Primo Levi is another good example, a chemist professional uh, chemist yeah. who uh who knows conrad is another good example of that a sea captain he actually was a pretty successful sea captain uh yeah and obviously that gave him a lot of specialized detailed knowledge or mark twain on the riverboat there's a lot of uh a lot of good examples of that of expertise making its way into fiction yeah okay so my second pick, I am going to kind of keep with the theme of writers who wrote while they were at work, mm-hmm. but I'm going to move away from those who carved out time or found kind of low-level jobs that allowed them to work to write while they were working and go to one who was just so good at his job that he was able to write when he was at work, and that's Elmore Leonard. Hmm. What was and his job? So he was an advertising guy, and he Uh worked at Chrysler. He's a Detroit guy. He worked at Chrysler in the General Motors building. And the legend that I had heard, uh, which I I wasn't able to confirm for the podcast, but I've heard this legend, and I'm going to relate it because it's such a good story. The Uh legend is that he used to sit at his desk, and he would just type out his novels. He started out, we know him mainly as the crime writer, I think, with Rum Punch, which became Jackie Brown, and uh, Get Shorty, and he had that run of of all of those, um, you know, those great novels, crime novels that turned into movies, uh, kind of in the nineties, right? He originally was a, a wrote westerns and kind of these dime oh. store westerns, and then he turned that into more of a crime fiction. Uh, kind of turned his hand to crime fiction. But hmm. while he was working in this advertising department of Chrysler, the legend is that he was sitting at his desk and he was typing away one of his novels and. His supervisor, his manager, was showing around a vice president, and the vice president commented on it and said, well, what's that guy working on? And they said, oh, that's that's Elmore. Uh, we He's not actually working on a, a campaign. He's he's writing his novels. And, <laughs> and they said, you know, the vice president said, well, what, why are we paying him if he's writing a novel? And they said, well... You know, we just kind of leave him alone and, and let him do it. And the vice president was getting angrier. So the manager walked over and he said, hey, Elmore, uh, we're working on an ad campaign and we just can't come up with a good slogan. We need a, a new slogan to base this campaign around. Do you have anything for us? And Elmore Leonard looked up and he said, the heartbeat of America. 
<laughs> and then he went back to typing and the manager went back to the vice president and said, that's why we leave him alone and that's why we pay him. Um, so it's a oh, great, uh, advertising is a good, it's pretty well represented by some interesting people. Salman Rushdie worked in advertising yeah. for a while. F. Scott Fitzgerald and Joseph Heller and Dorothy L. Sayers. And it makes a lot of yeah. sense. Part of me always worries that they'll, if, if a writer stays in advertising too long, they might get a bit corrupted, you know, and, and turn, turn their powers to slogans and, and catchphrases yeah. and just the sort of falsity of yeah. advertising. Well, that, you know, it may, it made me wonder as you were saying that about the falsity, whether a book critic mm. has that same issue trying to write a novel um, whether, you know, like Volcano Lover by, mm -hmm. uh, Sontag or The yeah. Book of God by James Wood, you know, whether you, you, you have in the back of your mind the, the criticism language yep. that sort of prevents you from, you know, be, taking a fictional voice rather than this kind of overall intellectual voice. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that's I think that's kind of a dangerous profession for a, a an aspiring novelist to take on is to write, uh, yeah. you know, criticism for money. I think they probably worry they make a lot of enemies in the industry, and but also, as you said, it's more of a the big danger is that they internalize criticism in a way, and it it might make them too hesitant to take risks or try yeah. new things. But I, I have an open mind. James Wood is coming out with a new novel, so I'm hoping it's better than Book of God. It'll so. be it'll be interesting. He's he has such a particular point of view, and he's given so many examples of what he thinks works and doesn't work that I'm sure. Yeah, it's easy for his books to be measured against that standard, and which probably isn't fair. You know, it's. He's he's choosing the best examples from someone like Flaubert to highlight, and then it's pretty hard to right. make that the standard for a you know a three hundred page book or what however long it is. Yeah. Okay, so who was the next one on your list? So sticking with office jobs, I I, I just you know <laughs> was laughing at how many insurance jobs there were. <laughs> well, Kafka. Yeah, was, Kafka, uh, Wallace Stevens, and. You know, I, and I think there's something about a mundane job mm -hmm. that either um, makes you ready to write because you're just desperate to do yeah. something interesting, right? Or and or makes you angry enough that you, you you're driven. You're trying to, to get out. There's probably many many examples, but Kafka is one. I mean, he he wrote at night and he. He just hated his job. In fact, his working title, I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but his working title for all of his works was The Functionary. <laughs> uh. I, you know, I had a professor, a political science professor in college, and he was saying that he had no uh, aspirations to become a professor at all. And what had happened was he got this job where it was in some kind of lumber yard, and he was just feeding wood into a planer, I guess, 
all day long and he would just you know pick up wood and then push it through this this big machine that would shave it down and just piece after piece and so he found that the only way that he could get through a day was if the night before he had been reading and he would read sort of the densest or the the most challenging or most thought-provoking works that he could find <laughs> so he'd, he'd read Karl Marx and he'd he'd read authors that he knew he could spend eight hours wrestling with in his mind so that he uh -huh. could just stay awake and, and stay sane. And then, you know, after a, a, a couple of years of this, he realized he was becoming very good at, at parsing the arguments and he was very, very broad. And then he went back to graduate school and uh, got a, a PhD in political philosophy. <laughs> For a lot of writers, I think that's how they they treat their time as writing is it it's the boost they need to get through the day. It probably gives them something to think about. I would imagine yeah. Kafka was thinking through his stories during the day, and then he at night he would sit down and write them out. I feel like an office job is a very risky job for a writer unless you're a certain type of writer. I mean, it takes a certain level of concentration. Like Jeffrey Eugenides wrote Virgin Suicides. I think the story is he was working for the Penn Foundation. Hmm. And he, instead of doing his work, he wrote, I'm pretty sure it's him, but he, he wrote uh, The Virgin Suicides. And one day, I guess he left it up on the screen and his supervisor saw it and fired him. Um, and then, <laughs> and you know, it has a happy ending. He's now a member of the Penn Foundation. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but. I, th I think it really does take a particular type of person to say, okay, this job is boring, but I'm going to write. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's more likely that someone is an avid outdoorsman and then decides they're going to, to write in their spare time. I don't know. Maybe I, again, I err against office jobs as, as, as a possible venue f uh, you know possible channel for writing fiction that it's too deadening i think it's really hard yeah so uh did you take a number three or you're taking insurance as i guess kafka, oh, kafka. Insur okay. insurance jobs okay so i will use this as a chance to transition to my number three since you talked about outdoor interesting jobs and i'm going to take uh jack london mm. For his job as an oyster pirate. What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> this, was, this was, I think, the number one in my category of bizarre jobs. There's some great examples of, you know, Salinger was an entertainment director on a Swedish cruise liner. And mm -hmm. um, Octavia Butler, the science fiction writer, was a potato chip inspector, which is a great which is a great, <laughs> a great job. And Douglas Adams cleaned chicken sheds and was a bodyguard for a family of Middle Eastern oil tycoons. <laughs> and Jack London was an oyster pirate. So he was young. He was still a teenager, and he was working in a pickle factory for 10 cents an hour. And he decided to become an oyster pirate to make more money, which was a kind of a Robin Hood type of profession. It was, it was illegal, but basically the railroad had leased out tracts of land that it owned along the coast to oyster farmers. So oysters had become a protected monopoly 
and that harmed the working class fishermen who had been harvesting the oyster beds before the railroad had come in and and taken up their rights to this wa- these waters off the coast. <laughs> and it, it used to be that the oysters were considered a public resource, but then the, the railroad got this monopoly on it. So London was only 15, but he bought a ship, which was called the Razzle Dazzle, and he became known as the Prince of the Oyster Pirates. And he would go out at night in the dark, and he would maneuver the ship silently through the harbor. There were armed guards who were patrolling the wharf, and he wow. would maneuver the ship through, basically through these oyster farms, and he would jump out, wade through the mud, get to the farms, fill sacks with oysters, and then haul them back on his ship. And then he'd sold them to restaurant owners who didn't really care where they where they got them from. But then during the day, he was reading a lot at the Oakland Public Library, which was and his his real love was stories and and storytelling and, and everything. So eventually, he gave up pirating uh in favor of of writing more but when he needed work again he went he went and worked for the California Fish Patrol and caught oyster pirates so he turned on his own on his own you know former uh pirates i guess and but he was really i think he was just a thrill seeker you know i think he was he he was someone who couldn't be contained. He had a lot of energy and a lot of excitement and eagerness for life. And I think that really shows in his writing. He's, he's best known for all of his adventure stories. And he did write about being an oyster pirate uh, in a, a couple of um, essays, but also in some short shorter works. I don't think he ever wrote a novel about it, but I've seen uh, short stories of his, which talks about his experience catching oyster pirates. Wow. So it's a great uh, it's a it's a great example of somebody yeah. with a youthful job. I found that a lot of writers they tended to have more exciting jobs when they're younger, which I think is probably just true of humans in general. That reminds me of how Sebast- Sebastian Junger, uh, for a while after he graduated from Wesleyan, was a tree cutter. Hmm. And people were like, oh, that sounds really fun. He was like, no, it's dangerous. People died all the time. They climbed up these enormous Ooh, yeah. trees and they had to cut off the branches that were pretty heavy that were liable to fall. Wow. Yeah. So he said, you were up, you couldn't be, you couldn't be, it had fear of heights. You were up so high and nobody wore helmets. Mm. <laughs> so, but he said, when you came down, it was kind of like when you take up, I mean, uh, probably akin to, you know, taking off your like roller skates. I mean, you you felt this levity, you know? Yeah. Now, was your uh, most dangerous job work uh, a bike messenger in Manhattan? Um, I think it was probably, objectively, it was probably the most, most dangerous <laughs> job. But I think Did when I- hit- I thought you got hit three times in one summer. I got hit by a bus twice. <laughs> but um, each time the bus was going pretty slowly. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was pulling into a bus stop and I You were decided trying to swerve to, around it. Yeah. And so, <laughs> um, but I think the scariest job I had was I worked um, in my parents' electronics store. It's uh-huh. kind of a kind of a tough neighborhood in Jersey City. Oh, yeah. And I was, I think it was probably 
the illusion. It was just the child's perspective. I thought it was more dangerous than it was. Yeah, but did yeah. you have security glass or anything or no. um, uh, security uh, cameras, I suppose? Yeah, but they... What would that do, though, if someone came in with a gun? Yeah. In fact, I think I, I remember somebody saying to me, I could just shoot you. And I just, <laughs> I was thinking like, oh. I, I, oh, no, he's, I think the kid said, I could just shoot you and I'd go to jail, but you'd still be dead. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, that was one of the first lessons I learned, which is you could be right, but you could be dead. Right. That's and justice. That was, yeah. Yeah. It was better not to be right and live. You'll say, well, I'll, I'll bring that up with my parents. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that, you know, it's funny not to bring too much personal stuff, but I think that job taught me to appreciate free time. Mm. Because, because you had free time there? No, no, because I was stuck there. Oh. Yeah. Oh, oh, the, the freedom of being, yeah. of not being on someone else's schedule. Yeah, because I was I was probably like ten, and I get there at like eleven and work until eight. Mm. It was probably a violation of child labor laws today. <laughs> Nine hour day for a ten year old. You know the funny yeah. thing about jobs like retail jobs. I've had this experience. Uh, sometimes it's answering phones, and sometimes it's uh, something in customer service. But on the one hand, you know you hate to be bothered. But on the other hand, there's something very disruptive about having a block of time to yourself and then being interrupted. Yeah. You know, if somebody can walk in, like if you're if you're in a steady state of, of busyness, it's almost better than if you have, you know, no customers for 15 minutes and then suddenly somebody is, is yeah. there at the window. You know, that's... Uh, Psychologically, that's almost harder than if you have a steady stream of activities. I mean that I I don't know if John what John Ashbery what what job he he held when he was younger, but I I I, I did read that he often likes to sit in public and eavesdrop and copy down verbatim what people say, mm. and he doesn't use it and he doesn't transcribe it directly into his poetry but it does give him some ideas and it made me think of the poet maybe this is a thing with poets the poet thomas thomas transtromer mm. the swedish poet he worked as a, a psychologist at a correctional facility for years oh wow well amy bloom was a psychotherapist and i always kind of wonder how she got away with that i mean i guess you just disguise your patients enough but that could be considered a real breach if the patients feel yeah. like they're recognizing themselves in, you know, in the in the fiction. Well, you know, David Foster Wallace in Infinite Jest, the the character Gately at the Alcoholics Anonymous, the the true Gately, um, you know, David Foster Wallace fans tracked down the true Gately, mm. and um, Gately said something. I, he was interviewed, and he said. Well, I'm glad David Foster Wallace used me because I don't think there's anything interesting I have to say. <laughs> and I don't think David Foster Wallace was really that interesting either. 
<laughs> he basically was making this argument like, you know, reality is really super boring. Right. So if, if you right. could make a novel out of this, you know, all power to you. And the interviewer came away thinking like, wow, I just thought Gately was a bit of a genius in the book, but here was the real Gately. <laughs> you know. But he was, apparently some of his conversations were almost identically uh, transcribed in the novel. Right. Oh, interesting. So I found a category of people who were very successful professionals. Oh, yeah. I really liked that. I liked when, you know, William Carlos Williams was a doctor and Zane Gray, the Western Mm -hmm. writer, was a dentist. (laughs) But I I really liked that. Primo Levi, I mentioned already, was a chemist. And there seemed to be T.S. Eliot was very successful working at a bank. Oh, yeah. And there's something very uh, nice about writers who aren't just pulling the William Faulkner and they can't wait to get out of there, but they're actually doing really well at what they're doing and they, they find that they have a knack for something or they're able yeah. to rise to the top of some meaningful profession. So I think uh, I think it's your turn. Do you have any more people on your list? We kind of got away from our draft here a little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I went with janitors. Oh, okay. Because I got, I have two janitors. I've got Jonathan Franzen, who was a janitor, I believe, at MIT um, when he was writing uh, the 27th City or Strong Motion, one of his early books. Uh-huh. And then Stephen King, who was a high school janitor. Oh, yeah. you know, that's one of my friend's father's dream jobs. He did that. He retired and he became a high school janitor. Or wow. maybe, maybe it was an elementary school janitor, but he talked about it all of his life. You know, the way some people talk about wanting to be a, a greeter at, at Walmart or at Disney World or something when they uh, yeah. re- sort of semi-retire. And that was his idea. He mm-hmm. loved, I think he loved the idea of being in the building alone at night and just when everything is peaceful and quiet and just getting it ready for the next day, but but doing it all by yourself in that that kind of night those nighttime hours yeah it's it seems like it's pretty easy but uh, still a form of labor uh physical labor so there's that aspect right right it gives you uh it it doesn't mentally challenge you you can but it's not so physically taxing that it's overwhelming stephen king i mean the thing about so now whenever i go into a school at night when i have to hunt down a janitor to retrieve something my kid forgot or something. Mm-hmm. I I have this feeling of, oh, yeah, my friend's dad, is, this was his dream. And I think, well, you know, is this something that I would want to do? And mm-hmm. I usually think, oh, yeah, it is kind of nice and peaceful. I can see how it's nice to have a little routine. But the biggest thing that gets me is whenever I, I run across the janitor, I'm worried I'm just going to scare the hell out of him. <laughs> and I think if I were in that building alone, I would, I, you know, I'd be constantly worried that someone was going to come around the corner or my imagination would run wild, which I guess would be good for Stephen King. I'm sure it, I'm yeah. sure he imagined plenty of strange creatures that could, that could turn up while he was there at the school. He said, I think it did work for him that way because he, he said he was inspired to write Carrie. Mm. from the time he spent, you know, being around high schools. Right. So, Wow. Okay, well, let me give another idea. 
which is uh, Murakami. Uh, because oh, yeah, this is great. something you don't see a lot, which is he owned a jazz uh, a jazz bar coffee shop. And mm. it's pretty unusual. I didn't find a lot of authors who were independent business people. Yeah. And you'd think it would really appeal to writers because it can be very creative. You can be your own boss. You can set your own schedule. And you can have that kind of freedom of mind that a salaried people don't often have but on the other hand i think it can be very stressful and it can be all consuming which is maybe why a lot of writers don't don't follow that path but murakami had a a pretty successful shop it seems like today i mean a lot of the picks we we chose were um probably more than 50 years ago it seems Mm -hmm. like today a lot of young writers are taking whatever job they can get that provides them with health health insurance. Yeah. Yeah. So in America. Can, yeah. So they can write in America so that they can get that first novel going. I, I wanted to make a recommendation for people out there who, if they haven't read it, I, I highly recommend Laurie Moore's three page story, how to become a writer. I don't mm. know if you remember this, but it's, uh, I forget which collection, but it's it's freely available on the web. But it, she worked as a legal assistant for several years, mm-hmm. and uh, at a law firm, a big law firm, and uh, she toyed with the idea of going to law school and then decided not to do it anyway. But it begins this way: How to become a writer? First, try to be something, anything else: a movie star, astronaut, a movie star, missionary, movie star, kindergarten teacher president of the world fail miserably it is best if you fail at an early age say 14 <laughs> anyway it, it goes on and on it's 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 pretty amusing and also sort of sad i wonder if when she was working at the law firm if that's where she met her first husband who was a divorce lawyer and who yeah. uh, she used to say later that they got like the fastest divorce <laughs> <laughs> like the fastest, cleanest divorce in history. <laughs> I wanted to to give my last uh, pick here, which was Harper Lee, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. And I really wanted uh-huh. to pay tribute to her co-workers. So Harper Lee was a reservation clerk at Eastern Airlines for a long time. <laughs> and this is just such a great story. So her co-workers... Uh, she had worked there for years, and uh-huh. she hadn't written uh, her novels yet. She was just an aspiring writer. And she had been working there for years when she got a note from her coworkers, and it said, um, you have one year off from your job to write whatever you please. Merry Christmas. Wow. And during that year, she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. Wow. Yeah, which is which then won the Pulitzer Prize, and of course, became, you know, a classic yeah. book and classic movie. And it was, uh, it's not something you you hear very often. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Oh, this was what I wanted to ask you about. Something, speaking of things you don't hear very often, did you find any examples of, you know, there's this classic paradigm of the writer who hates their job, they get successful, then they're able to quit their job. Did you find any examples of that happening in the reverse where someone was a successful writer, they started mm-hmm. doing a job, and then they actually preferred the job and they quit writing? 
Mm. No. I found one. Yeah. Maybe we should put that out to the listeners. That could be a, a challenge. Who is the trivia author? Question? Yeah. A little trivia question. And maybe people will come up with examples that I didn't find. But which author or writer mm-hmm. found another profession and gave up writing? Maybe maybe they gave up writing because their creative creative spark had, had flamed out or something. But uh, we will leave that for the listeners. Maybe I'll come back on the next episode and and give the answer. We should we should maybe do an episode or, or do a follow up to this about taking what people who people consider to be like you know the hundred most successful writers and just seeing what the jobs they had like, mm-hmm. if they had any like did George Eliot have a job? I mean I I, I don't know. Or, I mean Dickens Dickens was an actor and a playwright before yeah. he started selling his works. And he was, yeah. Dickens also had a young, had an early stint working in a factory, which I think obviously yeah. his uh, very, went on to really inform his writing career. And while he was there, he met a guy, you know, he, the people he met there, he used their names in later <laughs> works. <laughs> which I mean, is great. And we never talked, we didn't talk about Melville, all his, his uh, sailing experience. And- yeah. You know, so there there are people who I feel like they kind of threw caution to the wind and they did whatever the hell they wanted. Yeah. And then they ended up writing about it. Are you thinking about William so. S. Burroughs and his job as an exterminator? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then there are people who just, you know, were incredibly educated and sat in rooms. I mean, I think of Henry James. Mm, yeah. And just wrote these such microscopically perfect details about people. Yep. I mean, I know he was a socialite, and so was Edith Wharton, but I don't know. I, I just feel like they, they, James didn't do much. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, How, and maybe I'm wrong. So You know who I'm surprised you didn't mention, too, is uh, George Orwell. Oh, yeah. Who almost seemed what, to seek I mean, out jobs to write about them. He was a super... He was like a... He was basically a superhero, <laughs> you know, <laughs> fighting off, going to fight wars. Yeah, living. yeah, going down in the mines. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're right. And the shooting an elephant, you know, working as a Indian imperial police officer. Yeah, he he's somebody who he probably wouldn't have had to work. He could have spent his whole career probably as. Uh, as a critic, but he made himself get out there and work. I think as a as a way of experiencing more, and um, I think it was probably to feed into his view of what a writer should do, and also just what a human being should do. I guess. Yeah. Uh, Philip Larkin had an interesting job. Was a university librarian, and Nabokov. Uh, I had forgotten that he had become a, a curator of the Butterfly Museum in, at Harvard. <laughs> well, so he he found a way to get out of the house too. Okay, so does that wrap it up? Do you have any others, or does that uh, does that take us through all we have? We've covered quite a few different authors and their their professions. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I, I I was wondering, like, how about people who are incredibly successful at their jobs, like Winston Churchill and. Like oh, when yeah. when right. did when did people find time to like when did Barack Obama write his memoir? When did he find time to write? Yeah, you know? 
or Vaclav Havel, who was the yeah. first president of the Czech Republic, and he was still writing this brilliant, um, yeah. you know, brilliant essays, even when he was president. I guess writers who have it that entrenched in them, they don't want to give it up. I mean, like Heller wrote Catch-22. It took him eight years to write it. He was working in an ad agency during the day and then writing two to three hours every night. I mean, so Harper Lee taking a year, I think probably Heller's experience is more common. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. if, you, you, if you have that day job, I don't think you're writing a novel very quickly. Right. So. Right. But that might be better. Yeah. That might be a better pace. Yeah. So everyone go out there and, and play some lotto. <laughs> Lottery winner. That's the uh, that's your recommendation for aspiring writers out there. Become a lottery winner. <laughs> okay, well, let's wrap things up there. And um, this is good. And I'm glad you're able to take some time off from your own job and head out on vacation. We're going to try to to put a couple of more shows in the in the storehouse here, so we'll be able to to spread them out even when you're gone. But in any case, uh, thanks for joining me again today on the history of literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Mike for joining me for that wonderful conversation. We have some more coming up. We have a two-parter on literature goes to the movies. I can't wait. Remember, you can support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash literature. As of now, I believe there are zero supporters. Maybe you will be the first. Let me know how it goes. That's patreon.com slash literature. And if you have a quiz answer, shoot me an email. JackWilsonAuthor at gmail.com. J-A-C-K-E. Wilson author at gmail.com. I'll mention the lucky winners on the air. We all know writers who quit their day job. Name a successful writer who quit writing in favor of their day job. See? Tri- <laughs> Trivia contests. New ways to support the show, i.e., beg for money. It's going to be a great second hundred episodes. I'm very glad you're here with us. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.